I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to the passage of Scripture that Paul read for us earlier, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to be looking primarily at verses 22 to 36 this morning. As we come to the Lord's table, we want to prepare our hearts with a meditation on God's Word. And I want you to go back just to verse 12. It wasn't read this morning, but I want to start at verse 12. In verse 12, we have a reference to the crowd that was there on the day of Pentecost. We talked about that last Sunday morning, that the Holy Spirit would come. Jesus promised to baptize the disciples in the Holy Spirit, to give them power, uh, to be witnesses. And in Acts 2, we have the fulfillment of this. And the Holy Spirit does come, and a miracle takes place, and the disciples, the 120 of them who were gathered there, are enabled to speak in languages that they have never learned. And the crowd of people in Jerusalem, it says in verse 12, are amazed and perplexed, and they asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? Important question that's being asked there. And so... Peter gets up and addresses the crowd that is there, and he explains to them, he answers their question, what does this mean? He explains to them what is taking place, and he quotes from one of the Old Testament prophets, the prophet Joel. And when he quotes from Joel, he's indicating here that this is a momentous event that has just taken place, because the Old Testament prophets anticipated that this day would finally come when God would pour out His Spirit upon all people all over the world. And now that day has arrived. In other words, this is a turning point in history. Jesus, according to the prophet Joel, has ushered in the last days. You and I are living from that day when the Spirit came until the day when Jesus will return from heaven. We are living in these last days, and it is the days in which the reign of God has begun, that the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus. Now, these verses are all about a promise. It's about the promise of the Spirit, but specifically it is about our first point this morning, the promise of salvation. Because Joel and the prophets look forward to this day when the Messiah would come, pour out His Spirit, and He would save the world. And so look at verse 21. This is the end of a quotation from the prophet Joel, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There it is, the promise. The promise of salvation that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter is saying here that there's this long day of opportunity from the Spirit coming until the second coming, the long day of opportunity for individuals to, to be saved. Now, this promise of salvation is also an invitation to salvation. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. There's an invitation in these words that if you will call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But the next thing I want you to see is that this promise of salvation is linked to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so beginning at verse 22, He says, Men of Israel, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth, there it is, Jesus of Nazareth. The man who walked among us, the man who you saw, the man who you heard, the man who performed miracles in your midst, he is the one who brings salvation. And Peter's going to explain this here. The promise of salvation is linked to the person 
of Jesus. And in verse 22, Peter tells us, first of all, that Jesus was approved by God. Look at what he says. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God or approved by God. Now, how? How did God approve him, so to speak, in the, in the sight and the hearing of others? Well, he did it, it says here, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. I want you to notice he uses three words here. He talks about miracles, wonders, and signs. The word miracle literally means a work of power, something powerful that happens. Wonders is referring now to the amazement that is caused by the people when they behold the works of power. They're like, wow. And then the last word is signs. And signs tells us that these miracles of power, these works of power, which created wonder, were actually signs. Signs given by God, signs performed by Jesus that point to something greater. They signify something about the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to just think for a moment about the, the ministry of Jesus during that three and a half years which the gospel writers record, record for us. And, and what do we see in the ministry of Jesus? We see these works of power. We see that, that Jesus has power over disease. He heals people who, who are filled with all kinds of diseases, illnesses, ailments in life. Jesus also had power over demons. He cast demons out of many people. The beginning of his ministry in a, syn a synagogue, a man uh, uh, oppressed by a demonic spirit, and Jesus set the man free. He also had power over death in that he, he raised Lazarus from the grave. The, these are miraculous works of power. And how did people respond to these things? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, we, we, uh, the question isn't how did he do it, but the question people ask is, who is this man? Even the demons are subject to him. Who is this man? The winds and the waves obey him. You see, these are signs point to Jesus. And the question is, who is he? You remember, we have recorded in Mark chapter 2 that, that they, 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 they lowered down through the roof, through a hole in the roof, this man who was paralyzed. And, and they placed him in front of Jesus. And, and Jesus made a statement. He says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say to the paralytic, rise up and walk. In other words, if he can make the paralyzed walk, then surely he can forgive sins. The sign pointed to something about Jesus. And this verse says that by all these miraculous signs, God was showing that he approved of Jesus as his Messiah. Not only was he approved by God, Jesus, it says here in verse 23, was handed over by God. That is, handed over to death. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. When you and I think of Jesus being handed over, we think of the, of the, the, the heinous crime that Judas committed when he handed Jesus over, when he went and betrayed Jesus. But, but the same word is used here, that he wasn't handed over by Judas, but he was handed over to you by, by God. By God. 
by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This Peter's telling us here that the, the crucifixion, the execution of Jesus was, was partly by God and, and partly by, by wicked human beings. Now notice he's speaking to the crowd here. The, these, the people in this crowd were there at that moment when they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. It's the same crowd, it's the same people in the same, the same city. And these people prided themselves in being lawful individuals. That they would follow the laws of Moses. But Peter says here, you, you handed him over, you, you put him to death with the help of wicked men, by lawless men. He's referring here to the Romans, who had no law, who had no, dis, had no regard for God's law at all. So those who thought the law was so great, and those who disregarded the law, law lawful sinners and lawless sinners, they're all sinners. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Romans performed the act, but the Jews demanded and consented to it. And so, as it were, a representative of all of humanity, we are responsible for the death of Jesus. And this death was simultaneously attributed to the purpose of God and the wickedness of men. He was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. There was a purpose, Peter says, in the death of the Lord Jesus. And this purpose was determined by God himself. Something was worked out on the cross when Jesus died. But the next thing Peter tells us is that, verse 24, was that Jesus was raised up by God, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was, a, it was a human court, the, the Sanhedrin, which had condemned Jesus to death. And they brought him to Pontius Pilate, who had the ultimate authority to put him to death. He was the judicial representative of Rome. And so in these human courts, as it were, Jesus was condemned to die. But God's court in heaven overruled the courts of men. And that God raised him from the dead. They condemned Jesus to die, but God decreed his resurrection. The crucifixion was ordained by God, and the resurrection was planned by God. And at this point then, Peter, to give proof to what has happened, quotes from the prophet David, King David himself. He quotes from the 16th Psalm, verse 25, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. And, and Jews in the past would read this psalm and they would say, David's talking about himself here. He's talking about his own body. He's talking, verse 27, that he wouldn't be abandoned to the grave. That, that the Lord wouldn't let his Holy One see decay. But Peter says, David wasn't really writing about himself. David was writing about his descendant. If you go down to verse 30, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Peter was telling us here that, that David was actually describing Jesus who would come and that Jesus' body would live in hope. There's a physicality to this. There's a, a resurrection here. He would not be abandoned to the grave, verse 27. 
In one sense, David could be referred to as a holy one, but not a holy one like Jesus. It is your holy one, capital H, capital O. Your holy one will not see decay. And so you, you go back to verse 24, it says, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. We have a, a picture here of the resurrection of Jesus, sort of like a, a, um, a woman in labor. You can't stop what's going to happen. That, that new life is going to emerge from that mother's womb. And in the same way, death could not hold Jesus down, and he emerged out of the grave triumphant, the Lord of death and of life. But not only his resurrection, it says here in verse 33 that Jesus was exalted by God, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So the power which raised Jesus from the dead also exalted Jesus to the right hand of God himself. And when we think of the right hand of God, we're, we're thinking here of the a place of honor, the place of favor, the place of authority. And friends, as you read your Bible through, as you read from Acts into the end of your Bible, the, the New Testament, all, all of these writings, all of these letters given to us by Paul and Peter and John and others, they, they all present Jesus to us as one who is now enthroned in the heavens. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. He lives enthroned over angels and principalities and powers, and they are all subject to Him and when God exalted Jesus, the first thing that Jesus did was he received, it says here in verse 33, he received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So when the people said, what does this mean? Peter said, this is what it means. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus ascended into heaven. And now Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit Look at verse 36. Peter comes to a conclusion. This is the conclusion he makes. Therefore, in light of all of these truths about Jesus, in light of what's going on right now that you are witnessing and seeing, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He, Jesus, is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one who has the status of equality with God. He is Lord and Christ. Lord, he is given a title like the title of Yahweh himself. There's an intimate connection, an intimate relationship, a relationship of equality between, between the Father and the Son. Go back to verse 21. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Yahweh. Call on his name. But Peter now says, God made Jesus Lord. He takes the title. The title given to Yahweh himself is now given to the Lord Jesus, meaning whoever calls on Jesus will be saved. And the Bible tells us if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So what does this salvation mean, this promise of salvation? What does it mean? What does being saved mean? Well, I want you to notice in verse 38 that this promise has two blessings. Two blessings. The first is the forgiveness of sins, and the second is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's there in verse 38. 
Your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. You receive the forgiveness of sins, and you will also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's what it means to be saved, to receive the forgiveness of sins and to receive the gift of God's Spirit, the forgiveness of sins. This is the problem we all have. It's the human problem. It's the human predicament that we, are, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. Perhaps the greatest problem we have in terms of mental health is the problem of guilt. And so much of what gets passed on for mental health is often nothing more than guilt itself. There are things that you have done, things that I have done that we are guilty of and, and we, we, we are plagued by guilt. But Jesus can forgive our sins. And notice the word there is plural, not the forgiveness of a sin, not one sin, not a little sin, but the forgiveness of sins. And some of us think, well, I have so many of them. Well, the verse promises forgiveness for many of them. And some of us think, well, I have one that is, that is so horrible, I can't even speak it. It must be an unforgivable sin. But it's the forgiveness of sins. There's no qualification as to big or small or real bad or not so bad. It's, it's, it's a blanket statement that is being made here. During Holy Week, we looked at the thief who died on the cross, remember, and how he turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me. And there's an old hymn. It's, it's a hymn that I love. It's, it's called, There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, drawn from the veins of Jesus. And the writer depicts the blood of Jesus that washes away sins as, a, as an ever-flowing fountain, an abundant fountain that can forgive sins. And the hymn writer, one of the stanzas says, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Look again at verse 36. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord in Christ. Is there, was there any sin more vile than the sin that these people had committed? when they demanded the crucifixion of the Son of God. And yet on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And now here in this passage, we read that when the Spirit of God came at Pentecost, that 3,000 of the people who cried out for Christ's crucifixion, who committed that vile sin, received God, received Christ, and we're forgiven for their sins. We receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive the gift of the Spirit, meaning God's living presence comes into us. The life of God himself, eternal life, a life that only God possesses, comes into us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at verse 38, where these two promises are mentioned, it mentions repent and be baptized. And why is the word baptism there? Because baptism signifies this very thing. 
Baptism signifies the washing away of our sins when we go under the water. It's, it's, the, it's the washing away in water, as it were, of our old life and of our old sin. And we come up out of the water like Jesus when the Spirit of God came upon Him at His baptism, the outpouring of the Spirit, the giving of the Spirit. Baptism signifies both of these things. Now look at the last thing that is said here. It's found in verse 39. And it says, this promise is for you. This promise is for you and for all your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And whom will God call? Well, whoever calls on the name of the Lord are those whom God calls and includes those who are far off. It includes all the nations of the world. So a question for you today is, have you called? Have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you called on the name of the Lord to save you? If you haven't, I I invite you to today, and and the pastors will be available after our worship time, and we would count it a real joy to, to help you and to show you how you can call on the name of the Lord and experience this great salvation. But if you have called on Him, then we invite you today to come to His table to remember all that Jesus has done for you. If you are an individual today and you know that you've received the forgiveness of sins through Christ and you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, then we invite you today to come to this table with us and to eat and to drink and to remember not just His death, but His resurrection, His ascension into heaven, His exaltation, the giving of the Spirit, because all of these events, all of these blessings of salvation are all associated with the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for those of us who believe in Him and have received these gifts, this table is for you today. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that You will move in our hearts and that You will make the death of Christ so real to us today as we share together this bread and this cup. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he work in us with that which is pleasing in his sight. And may we continue to live for his glory each day through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.